Amen. Last June, there was a California congressman who was fed up. His political opponents were pushing for legislation that he believed was bigoted, hateful, and on the wrong side of history. So he stood before the United States House of Representatives and he said, I quote, I just thought I would now recite for you what Jesus Christ said about homosexuality. He then stood silently at the podium for 20 seconds and then returned to his seat. This sort of argument is far too common. When Christians support a traditional view of marriage and gender, we are told that Jesus never even mentioned these topics. There are three major problems with that argument. The first is that silence doesn't equal support. There are all sorts of ethical issues that Jesus never explicitly mentioned. Jesus never explicitly talks about abortion, pornography, suicide, heroin addiction, and child abuse either. But his silence doesn't mean that he supports those things. A second major problem with that argument is that the entire Bible is the word of Christ. All of God's word is the word that Jesus would have for us, not merely those words that in some Bibles are printed in red. And the Bible does say a lot about these issues. The, the final problem with that argument that Jesus didn't really talk about those issues is that it's really simply not true. If you're not already there in your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Last week, we looked at the first nine verses of this text, and we looked at Jesus' main point in this teaching about marriage and divorce. But as we examine his words again this morning, I want you to see that there's more going on here than meets the eye. In God's providence... We are right here in Matthew's gospel on the very first Sunday in June. It is this month, often called Pride Month, when our cultural celebration of homosexuality and transgenderism gets ramped up a few notches. So how should we think about this topic as followers of Jesus? The big idea that I hope you learn from today's sermon is this. The word of Jesus is incompatible with the worldview of pride. Now, before we dive into that from the text, let me just tell you, I do not make that claim lightly, and neither should you. To say that the word of Jesus is incompatible with the culture of pride is a statement that will put us at odds with many of our friends 
and co-workers and neighbors. This is a statement, if we cling to it, that might even separate us from those in our own homes. We dare not make this claim lightly. It is a claim that would lead many cultural elites to say that we are backwards bigots on the wrong side of history. It is a claim that would lead many to say, just forget about reaching your community now if you're going to stay, say stuff like that. So we dare not say that Jesus' words are incompatible with the worldview of pride unless we have a very good reason to do so. And I believe that in our text, there are three reasons why Christianity is incompatible with a worldview of pride. After looking at those together this morning, we're then going to consider our response to Jesus' teaching. Now, one more little caveat before we get started this morning. You just need to know that there is so much to talk about with this topic. There is no way that in the amount of time that we have together this morning that I can address everything that needs to be said, every question that you might raise, every objection that you might have. So I would ask you if you would listen to me graciously, understanding that we can't address everything. I would also invite you to save your calendars for Sunday night, June the 25th, when we meet for Sunday night theology in June, we're going to talk about this issue again and have time for questions and answers and dialogue. I would plead with you to be back here for that if you're able. But today, we need to begin by examining three reasons why the word of Jesus is incompatible with the worldview of pride. Number one, Jesus affirms God's design for gender. Jesus affirms God's design for gender. Now remember, in our text, the Pharisees are confronting Jesus with a sticky question about the issue of divorce. And they come to Jesus with their question, and when he responds to them, his answer tells us a lot about what Jesus believes about gender. Look at verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, thousands of years have passed since God created Adam and Eve, yet Jesus still roots his belief about gender in the beginning. Quoting Genesis 1.27, Jesus affirms two key truths about gender that Christians must affirm. Number one, gender is determined by God, not self. I realize that it is incredibly popular, especially around graduation season, to tell people, especially young people, you can be whoever you want to be. The sky's the limit. You can do whatever you set your mind to. I hate to be a grump, but I respectfully disagree. 
You cannot be whatever you set your mind to be or whatever you want to be. You can set your mind to being a cardboard box, but that will not make it so. You can, with all of your might and all of your energy and all of your desire, set your heart and mind on becoming a butterfly, but you will not sprout wings. There are limits to who you can be. Now, this philosophy of self-identity, you define yourself, nobody but you says who you are, that has now come to roost, and its logical extremes are now being carried out in our world today. If I get to decide who I am, and I determine my own identity, then why do I have to be a male if I was born in a male body? or vice versa. Why draw the line there? Jesus respectfully disagrees with that conception of self-identity. Jesus comes along and he says, it is God who created us male and female. It is God, not the self, who determines who we are. Dear brother, sister, friend, before you feel superior to those who believe that they can determine their own gender, ask yourself, in what ways do I insist on defining who I am? Because this is not a unique sin out there. It's a sin in here. In what ways do I do this? Listen to me, especially young people in the room. The more you clamor for the freedom to determine who you are, the more a slave you become. The kite wants to be free. If only he could be set free from that string. The train says, I'll be free if you get rid of these tracks. The fish says, I'll be free if only there wasn't all this water. And yet, the very thing that it looks to for freedom becomes its slavery, its death. So too will you, dear young one, if you claim for or crave for freedom to define who you are, you will become a slave. We do not determine who we are. God does. The second thing that Jesus affirms about gender is that it is a binary, not a spectrum. For most of human history, people have understood gender as binary. You're either male or female. But the culture of pride insists that gender is a spectrum with many gender possibilities. Uh, For example, just a few years ago, the BBC produced a series of nine educational films aimed at children ages 9 to 12, teaching that there are a hundred, if not more, gender identities. Now, that belief change in the Western world, this is what we call a worldview, that belief change has resulted in a massive behavior change, especially for young Americans. A a decade ago, only one in 10,000 young people sought medical intervention because they felt like their body didn't match their gender. In the last decade, those numbers have increased by over 1,000% in the United States and 4,000% in Britain. 
Consider in contrast, dear brother, sister, friend, the teaching of Jesus. Jesus clearly says that gender is a binary. It's not a spectrum. He says that we have been created male and female. Now, it's significant that Jesus still clings to gender as a binary. You're either male or female, even though he's talking to people that are living in a world that's corrupted by sin. Think about all the ways that sin corrupts maleness and femaleness. For one thing, we often abuse it, don't we? How many men have there been throughout human history that abuse their masculinity to dominate and control other people? How many women have there been throughout history who have used their femininity to seduce and control people? Even though gender is abused and the distinctions are abused, Jesus still says this is God's design. In addition to that, Due to the effects of sin, sometimes, and this is a a tough issue to think about, but sometimes gender is ambiguous. In extremely rare cases, children can be born with a biological condition that makes it difficult to tell if they're biologically male or female. This was a condition known in the ancient world, often called hermaphroditism, named after the god Hermes and Aphrodite, who had a child who sometimes looked female and sometimes looked male. That condition was known in the ancient world, and Jesus even mentions it in verse 12 when he says that there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And yet, Jesus still, despite abuses, despite sometimes physical ambiguity, Jesus still affirms God's original design for gender. I realize this is incredibly unpopular and politically incorrect. But dear brother, sister, friend, we do not get our theology based on what is agreed upon in Washington or Hollywood. Jesus affirms God's design for gender. Therefore, the word of Jesus is incompatible with the worldview of pride. A second reason is that Jesus affirms God's design for marriage. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus continues his answer to the Pharisees, and in his response, he affirms three truths about marriage. Number one, it's between a man and a woman, not anyone else. Look at verse 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Some reply. Jesus is referencing the most common family, not the only possible family. The problem with that argument is that you will not find a single homosexual marriage in the Scriptures. There are certainly perversions of God's design for marriage in the Scriptures. We'll get to one in a second. But it's significant that Jesus does not root his understanding of marriage in the cultural perversions, but in what God intended in the beginning. Others will say, well, if Jesus cared about same-sex marriage, 
Why didn't he specifically condemn it? I think that was the congressman's point by being silent for 20 seconds in front of the camera. Two reasons why Jesus didn't specifically condemn homosexual marriage. Number one, it's not, it wasn't a thing in the ancient world. Homosexuality was certainly a thing in the ancient world. It was rampant in ancient Rome and in ancient Greece, but nobody fought for the right to marry the same sex. In arguments over this issue in 2013, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito famously said that whatever same-sex marriage is, it's newer than cell phones and the Internet. A second reason why Jesus doesn't specifically condemn this issue is because it's easier to explain what marriage is than to condemn all the ways that we abuse it. Just like if you're trying to teach someone to spot a counterfeit bill, what do you teach them? You teach them the original. Listen, there are countless ways that creative humans have abused the institution of marriage. In recent years, people in the West have married all sorts of things, like a guitar, a pillow, and even a dolphin. Just recently, I read an article about the newest marriage trend, which is called sologamy, the practice of marrying yourself. Some of you are thinking, now that sounds like a good idea. Humans are creative sinners. So instead of Jesus refuting, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you can't do that, Jesus just says, this is what marriage is. It's between a man and a woman. Also, Jesus says that marriage is meant to be monogamous, not polygamous. Look at verses 5 and 6. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. It's interesting, again, that Jesus affirms monogamy as God's design for marriage. Polygamy was and is worldwide and historically and biblically the most popular perversion of marriage. Often, people will say, you Christians, you say you're for, uh, you know, biblical traditional marriage, but traditional marriage was polygamous. And there's polygamists all over the Bible. If polygamy is wrong, why is it all over the Bible? Why do you got guys like Moses and Abraham and Gideon and Jacob and David and Solomon all with multiple wives? Well, it's helpful to remember that any Bible passage you read is either descriptive, that is, it's describing something that happened, or it's prescriptive, it's telling you what to do. So, for example, when Jesus says in our passage, don't separate what God has joined together, that's prescriptive. Jesus is giving you a, a prescription for marriage. But when the same gospel tells us about how Judas went and hanged it himself, it is not telling you to go and do likewise. It's describing what happened. And whenever the Bible talks about polygamy, it's never endorsing it. It's showing you what happened. 
In fact, I would argue that the Bible actually goes out of its way to show you how deadly and dangerous and foolish polygamy is. Think about a few of the examples. The the jealous feud between Abraham's wives, Hagar and Sarah, led to abuse, abandonment, and war. Or in David's family, David, of course, had eight wives and a number of children. The rivalries among his children included incest, rape, murder, and an attempted coup. Or think about Solomon, whose a thousand wives led him into idolatry and the kingdom into ruin. The Bible actually works pretty hard to show you this is not good for you. But either way, Jesus comes along and he doesn't point to any of those marriages as the pattern for marriage. He goes back to the beginning. The two shall become one flesh. And finally, about marriage, Jesus says that it's a covenant, not a contract. Look at verse 6 again. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, we are not going to revisit what we discussed about marriage and divorce last week, but I do want to say this. I think there might be Christians in this room who are frustrated and even disgusted by the ways that gender and marriage and sex are being perverted in our world today. But before we look down on the world in anger, we need to look in the mirror first. The sexual revolution in our culture began with a marriage revolution. And by the way, the marriage revolution did not begin in 2015 when the Obergefell decision legalized same-sex marriage. The marriage revolution, in our country at least, began in 1970 when no-fault divorce was legalized. And far too many Christians have been just like the world when it comes to the permanence of marriage. But listen to me. Hear me carefully. We cannot pick and and choose the parts of Jesus' teaching that we like. We must submit to all of it. The word of Jesus is incompatible with the worldview of marriage Because Jesus affirms God's design for marriage. Number three, Jesus affirms God's design for intimacy. Jesus affirms God's design for intimacy. In verse 7, the Pharisees push back on Jesus' narrow beliefs about marriage. Jesus stands his ground. And in his response to the Pharisees, He affirms two truths about sexual intimacy that we as Christians must affirm. Two truths about sexual intimacy. Number one, it's a gift to be stewarded, not a God to be worshipped. Sex is a gift to be stewarded, not a God to be worshipped. One of the most popular refrains in our culture is, if it feels good, do it. And in the worldview of pride, not acting on your sexual desires and feelings is one of the worst things that you can do. 
I think the greatest sinner, according to the culture of pride, is the person who seeks to repress the desires of another person. But Jesus comes along and says, no, this this gift of intimacy is not a God that you bow before, and whatever you feel you do, it is a gift to be stewarded rightly. Few people better articulate the way that this has become a God in our culture than the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. In her view, listen to this, sexual liberation is the only method by which we can find inner peace and security and beauty. And then she said, through sex, mankind may attain the great spiritual, does that sound like worship language to you? Great spiritual illumination which will transform the world, which will light up the only path to earthly paradise. In our culture today, in the worldview of pride, sex is a God to be worshipped. But Jesus comes along and says something radically different. Look at verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I want you to remember that those two words in your English Bible Sexual immorality is one word in the original Greek. It's a word that would probably sound familiar to you. It's the word porneia, and it's a, it's a junk drawer sort of, sort of term that was used to describe various kinds of unsanctioned sexual activity. In Jesus' day, the word was used to refer to any sexual behavior outside of marriage, including premarital sex, prostitution, adultery, and same-sex behavior. So Jesus comes along and he says, listen, this gift of sexual intimacy is not a free-for-all. It's not a God to be worshipped. Acting on your desires and feelings outside of the marriage covenant actually breaks that covenant and it separates what God has joined together. Maybe you say, well, if I, desi- if I deny my desires, aren't I denying a part of myself? Yes, but if you think about it, every single one of us denies desires every day. All of you do. The question is not, will I deny some of my desires, but which desires should I deny and how do I know which ones? The the late Tim Keller, who recently went to be with the Lord, offers a really helpful illustration to help us think through this. He said, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in A.D. 800. Okay, so you're thinking about this, this Anglo-Saxon warrior. He's, he's a mighty warrior. He's in this culture where being strong and mighty in battle is a good thing. And he has these two inner urges. The first urge is to smash and kill, right? I mean, that's what he wants to do. The second urge is same-sex attraction. Now, what is this man in AD 800 going to do with those two desires? That first urge, smash, kill, conquer, he's going to say, yes, that's who I am. I'm going to identify with that. And that second desire, he's going to say, no, that's not who I am. I'm going to suppress that. 
Now, imagine the same man, or a different man, in Manhattan today with the same two urges. What is he going to do with those urges? The desire to smash and kill and attack and conquer, he's going to suppress that. He's going to say, no, that's not me. He's going to go to anger management and get therapy to overcome that impulse. But the other desire, he's going to say, that's who I am. Why is it that two people in two different historical epochs can have the same two inward desires and act on them so differently? Because most of us determine what desires to act upon and which to suppress by looking at the world around us. What is acceptable? What is affirmed? What is celebrated? That's what I want to identify with. The Christian says, no, I will decide which desires to suppress and which desires to cultivate according to the Word of God. Jesus affirms God's design for intimacy by reminding us it's a gift to be stewarded. Number two, Jesus says that intimacy is guarded by covenant, not consent. Now, here's what I mean. Um, the truth is, nearly everybody, including those in the LGBTQ community, nearly everybody believes that there are some limits on the sort of intimacy that's permissible. Everybody agrees there are some limits. There are, in fact, most people would agree that there are things that you might desire to do. If you act on them, you should go to jail. But how do we decide what is permissible and what isn't? The culture says, here's the answer, consent. As long as it's consensual, it's fine. As long as it's two adults and they agree, it's fine. Nothing is out of bounds. Jesus says, no. What guards this precious gift of intimacy is not mutual consent, but the marriage covenant. Notice verses 10 to 12. We'll look at them in greater detail next week. But for now, just notice how Jesus responds when the disciples ask, well, what's the alternative to Jesus' narrow teaching on marriage and divorce? The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, not everybody can receive this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. A pastor named Sam Albury summarizes those verses this way. When the disciples raised the possibility of not getting married, Jesus talks to them about being eunuchs. As far as Jesus is concerned, celibacy is the only godly alternative to marriage. Listen to me, young person, old person, man, woman, there are only two ways to honor Jesus with your sex life. If you're married, it is by limiting it to the one person that you're in covenant with. And if you're single, it's by limiting it entirely through celibacy. That's it. And by the way, every single one of us has to limit it. All of us do. So Jesus comes along and says that 
his worldview, the worldview of the scriptures, the word of King Jesus affirms God's original design for intimacy, and it is incompatible with the worldview of pride. Now, that's what Jesus teaches us explicitly from this passage. What I want to do now with the rest of our time is think about how we respond to this. If you've struggled to track with me so far, I'm just going to ask you to lean in for the next 15 minutes or so. Because I don't know that there are many things that are more culturally relevant than this. I'm going to ask you to think about four spheres where you and I interact, that where we need to respond rightly to Jesus' teaching here. The first one is as individuals. As individuals. How do we respond to this as individuals? There might be some in this room who are personally struggling in one or more of the areas that we talked about this morning. Maybe there's somebody in this room wrestling with feelings of gender confusion. For one reason or another, you feel like your body doesn't match up with who you feel like you are. Maybe there's someone in this room who is tempted by same-sex attraction. Or maybe you have sinned in your sex life, and you've taken this gift that's reserved exclusively for marriage, and you've given it to someone who is not your spouse. What does God say to each of these individuals? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can look on the screen. Beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. That is horrible news. Because I don't care how moral and conservative and upstanding you are, you fail that list somewhere. And by the way, everybody in this room that is north of puberty has sinned sexually too, either in thought, word, or deed. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So is there any hope? Not if 1 Corinthians 6 ends with verse 10. But thanks be to God, there is a verse 11. Listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hear me clearly, brother, sister, friend. None of these things we've talked about this morning are, unpar are unpardonable sins. Even in Paul's day, there were people that were saved out of these sinful lifestyles. How? Through the blood of Jesus, the same way that all of us are saved. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, here is your only hope. 
It is not looking different from the culture. It is not looking down on Pride Month. It is not being better than the people out there. It is looking to Christ and to Christ alone. Only Jesus can wash us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died on the cross as if he had committed all these sins and more so that if you would just trust in him, you can have everlasting life. That also means Christian in the room. There's no one beyond hope of the blood of Jesus. These people that might seem so other, so strange, so freakish, so different to you are not beyond the love and the blood of Jesus Christ. So, first of all, individually, we need to repent. There might be others in this room who are personally tempted to celebrate some of these things that God's word condemns. Uh, Maybe you have friends or family members who embrace this lifestyle and you can't bring yourself to believe something that condemns people you love. Maybe you're being pressured at work and everybody's pressuring you got to take these classes, DEI classes or whatever, and you just don't know that you can withstand it anymore, so you're just giving in. If, If you're tempted in that area, please hear this warning from Romans chapter one. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women or were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then skip down to verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Christian, hear me. You cannot celebrate what God condemns. It might feel unloving to call this behavior sinful, but it's not unloving if it's what God's word says. Would it be unloving to label a poison bottle as medicine? Absolutely. And so too it would be unloving to say to anything that the Bible calls sin, oh, that's fine. That's something we can celebrate. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, This might be the thing that turns you off from Christianity for good. Maybe you think, I I can't possibly imagine joining a community that is so intolerant. But I would encourage you to look again at the so-called intolerance of Christianity. Think about this with me. I think the true test of whether a community is tolerant or not is how they respond to the people that they disagree with. 
Every community disagrees with people. Every community does. How do we respond to the people that we disagree with? Christians certainly have done very poorly at this many, many times. But what does Jesus tell us to do? To love our enemies. To do good to those who hate us. Christianity, yes, it will be exclusive of certain behaviors, and it will be exclusive in the sense that only through Jesus can anybody be saved. But Christianity also will say that we are to love and welcome and affirm what we can with all sorts of people that we disagree with. So I would ask you, is Christianity really as exclusive as you think? Well, those are just some of the ways that we can respond individually. We also need to respond as families. I want to say a few words to the parents in the room this morning. Parents, please talk to your children about gender, marriage, and sex at age-appropriate levels. Please. I grew up in a very prudish home, and so I remember around 18 or 19, my dad sitting me down to have the conversation about the birds and the bees. At that point, it was quite awkward and quite unhelpful. The reason why I think parents do that or are tempted to do that is because we want to protect our kids. We want to shield them, and that's good. But listen to me. You may think that you're shielding your child, and you're probably wrong. The average age of first exposure to pornography is between 11 and 12, and 73% of teenagers admit viewing it before the age of 17. Parents, by failing to talk to your kids at age-appropriate levels about this stuff, you are creating a vacuum that Satan would love to fill with garbage and lies. So please talk to your kids about this stuff. If you need help knowing how to talk to, to your kids about this stuff, please talk to me after the service. I'd be happy to recommend some resources to you. Let me just tell you that we've had to have conversations with our five kiddos about things that I didn't even know about till I was an adult. Parents, I think that you may be harming your children in ways you don't even realize if you're not willing to have these conversations with them, probably earlier than you think. Also, parents, please teach your children how to express their gender appropriately. Here's what I mean. Yes, there are clear distinctions between boys and girls. Don't blur those distinctions. But also remember that femininity and masculinity don't look the same for everybody, right? There's not only one way to look masculine or be masculine or only one way to look feminine or be feminine. Some girls like princesses and wearing dresses. Some girls prefer climbing trees and playing soccer. What do we used to call those girls? Tomboys. Do you know what we tend to call them now in our culture? Trans. Why? Because... We have failed to teach our children that gender is more than these stereotypes. Listen to me, just look at the Bible. Look at Jacob and Esau. Esau's a man's man. He's a hairy guy. 
He likes to go hunting. He likes to hang out with dad. But what does the Bible say about Jacob? He preferred to stay at home at at, a tent with mom. Now, we would look at that and we would say, man, what a wuss or something of that nature. But the Bible doesn't say that Esau's masculinity is right and Jacob's is wrong. There are boys that, that love art and music and praise God for them. Listen to me, mom, dad, if you teach your children that they're really masculine boys when they're showing their athletic abilities and not when they're showing sacrificial love to other people, you've missed something somewhere. Parents, when you only treasure the outward beauty of your girls and not their inward beauty, you've missed something. Young people, please listen to me. The fact that you're different from other boys and girls doesn't mean that you aren't who God made you to be. Parents, please, please, please guard your children from the dangers of social media. A recent report suggests that teenagers on TikTok are exposed to harmful conduct on topics like eating disorders, weight shaming, self-harm, sexual assault, and suicide. Listen, every 27 to 39 seconds, teenagers. The U.S. Surgeon General recently warned that social media could pose profound risk of harm to young people's mental health. But as troubling as those reports are, they pale in comparison to one of the most dangerous effects of social media. In her book, Irreversible Damage, which documents the rapid rise of transgenderism among teenage girls, Abigail Schreier documents in detail the more than a dozen social media sites and online forums that facilitate the discovery of a trans identity. YouTube, Instagram, Tumblr, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, DeviantArt, TikTok are all popular hubs for encouraging children to be trans. Mom, Dad, do you know what your children are accessing on the internet? What safeguards have you put in place to protect them? One final question for parents to consider. What do you do if your child is already struggling? What do you do? Let me just suggest a few things from Andrew Walker's really helpful book, God and the Transgender Debate. First, Reaffirm your love for them. Listen to me. I'm going to be real real with you for a second, okay? I grew up in a culture, I grew up in a Christian culture where parents regularly told their kids if they didn't get in line, you get out of my house, you do not belong here. That is a damnable lie. That is a lie. Let us not treat our children that way. Let us love them. Let us love them. Let us welcome them. Even if we can't affirm where they sin, let us love them and say, I'm always your dad. Buto kids, I'm always your dad. I love you. Are we parents that can say that to our kids even when they stumble and reject us and reject what we teach and what we stand for? Can we do that, parents? We need to be people that do that. 
Number two, listen to them. Ask them questions. Don't interrupt. Don't fly off the handle. Ask good questions and listen. Number three, remember their age. The, the way that you would respond to a four-year-old that says, I'm a boy, but I feel like a girl would be really different from how you would respond to a 14-year-old or a 24-year-old. And number four, ask for help. Not from those who would affirm all of your child's desires. Ask for help within the church. Listen, if we can't be a place where we can come and ask for help with this, then what are we here for? Ask for help. I can promise you, Parents, if your kids are struggling with anything like this, or if they do someday, that you can come to any of our pastors and we will listen to you and love you and pray with you and pray for you and help you however we can. Which leads us to the third sphere where we need to respond. How do we respond in the church? Uh, PBC members, we must cling to the truth. You don't have to travel very many miles from here to visit so-called churches that are waving rainbow flags for Pride Month this June. How did they get there? How did they get there? They didn't show up to church one day and say, I think that we'll get in line with the revolution. What happened? They drifted. Theological drift, like Bobby prayed about this morning. They drifted one Sunday at a time. They didn't cling to the truth. We as the church, we must cling to the truth, and we maybe need to cling to it even tighter than we ever thought as things get even harder in the culture. Let me, read, let me just remind you what we believe as a church on this issue. This is from our statement of faith. This is what we, church members, agree to cling to. We believe God created people in his own image as uniquely male and female. Because we are made uniquely male and female, gender is a gift that is fundamental to human existence, with maleness and femaleness being an unchangeable characteristic congruent with human embodiment. While God calls some to singleness without loss of personhood, dignity, or contributive capability, heterosexual monogamy is God's design for men and women in marriage. We will not participate in and or recognize marriages that deviate from God's design. Any sexual activity before or outside of God's design for marriage is sinful. Homosexual behavior, same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, and any gender expressions incongruent with one's biological sex are results of the fall to be redeemed. There's hope through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to cling to that as a church. But, hear me, even as we cling to the truth, we must do so in love, ready to love and welcome those that God seeks to redeem. Recently, Holly and I read a book called Transgender to Transformed, and it tells the story about a young lady named Laura Perry. Uh, she was raised in a very strict Christian home, but when she reached adulthood, she decided to transition to a man. She had uh, top surgery. She took testosterone to try to look more masculine. But in the end, she saw the emptiness of that lifestyle and repented of her sins and put her faith in Jesus. And what encouraged me so much in that story was the way that her, her church responded to her. 
She went back to her home church, flat-chested, stubble on her face, and they loved her. They loved her. They didn't treat her like a freak. They loved her as an image-bearer of God. Church, are we ready and willing to do that? Are we ready and willing to do that? If we're not, where else are they going to go? Studies suggest that 41% of transgender men and women attempt suicide at some point. But suicide attempts increase by nearly five times after transitioning. Are we ready to love them to Jesus when they find out that there's no happiness at the end of the rainbow? Are we ready to welcome them? Or are we so busy fighting a culture war that we're forgetting to love the people in our lives? Do we think of them as combatants or captives? Are we willing to even go to those communities with the love of Jesus? I think Andrew Walker is right when he writes that a transgender person ought to feel more loved and safe visiting a Bible-believing church than in any other place in the world. Would that be true for PBC? Are we ready as a church to welcome a repentant man or woman whom God has saved out of a life of homosexuality or transgenderism to treat them as precious and beautiful image bearers of God and not as freaks? One final sphere where we need to respond, that's in our community. In our community. Now, rather than trying to fix the problem globally or nationally, I'm gonna encourage you to set your sights much, much closer to home. What can you do that might have an impact in your community? Maybe it's as simple as having conversations with those in your circle of influence about what you believe and why. Now let me pause here for a second because here's something that concerns me as your pastor. As the culture becomes increasingly antagonistic to Christian beliefs on this issue, it's easy to rejoice whenever we find somebody that agrees with us. When you find an atheist, unbelieving friend who agrees with you on this, don't let that be the place for unity. Listen to me. You have more in common with a Christian struggling with same-sex attraction than an unbeliever who believes that conservatives should boycott Bud Light. Do we believe that? Instead of merely having conversations, oh yes, can you believe that or can you believe this? Why not asking that unbeliever that, who agrees with you on this issue, why not ask him, why do you, why do you think that? What's the standard by which you decide what's moral and what's immoral? Can I tell you about my standard? Look at it as an opportunity to win them to Jesus rather than just to pat each other on the back for agreeing the same thing. Maybe in our community we can also impact by, being, by leaning into the public square. Maybe it's going to school board meetings or city council meetings or getting engaged in the political process when these issues arise or using your gifts to serve your community as a leader in one or more of these areas. Maybe you can impact your community by simply loving and serving the young people in your neighborhood. Listen to me. 
Nearly 21% of Generation Z identifies as LGBT. That's one out of five. More than every other generation combined. How, how many of those young people are just looking for love and acceptance? And finally, there's a community that affirms me. How many of them might receive love and acceptance from you if you were there to give it to them? You can certainly impact your community by praying for your community. What would happen if God answered every single prayer that you prayed for your community last month? How would your community look different? If the answer is not very much, then maybe we're not praying for our communities enough. God certainly responds to the prayers of his people. Uh, maybe the best way for you to impact your community is simply by refusing to bow to the altar of pride. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow to the golden image. They were ready to face the consequences. The king says, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. They said, that might be, O king, but we're still not going to kneel. Our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to kneel. And God used that simple act of rebellion from three Jewish boys to make it so eventually nobody had to bow down to the altar anymore. What if God did something like that through you? Just simply saying, I love you, and I'm willing to take the consequences, but I'm not going to kneel. I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but if you'll permit it, if I could have your attention for just a few more moments, I want to conclude by illustrating why this issue is so important for Christians. Imagine with me that you're one of the Roman soldiers responsible for crucifying Jesus. And you've been called to give some, some, some sort of a report about the nails that are used in his crucifixion. Oh, it's a silly scenario, but just imagine with me, you're a Roman soldier, you've got to stand before this council, this board, and talk to them about the nails. There's two ways that you can mislead them about the nails. First, you could say, well, these nails didn't really kill Jesus. I mean, he's God after all. And besides, nails are good. You can use nails to build houses. You can use nails to build bridges. You can use nails to build tables and chairs. Nails are good. Nails should be celebrated. Or you could say, yeah, those nails definitely killed Jesus, but it wasn't our fault. I mean, it's really the Jews, right? It's the Pharisees. It's Herod and Pontius Pilate. All the while, you're the one holding the hammer. Every Christian in this room is tempted by one of those errors when it comes to this issue. Either we are tempted to celebrate the sin that killed Jesus. It's not really a big deal, is it? Or, probably most of us in this room are tempted to the opposite error to rightly condemn that that sin and that killed Jesus, but to do it as if we weren't the ones holding the hammer too. So what's the solution, Christian? Hold fast to Jesus. If you're holding fast to Jesus, you can't possibly celebrate the sin that put your beloved Savior to death. And if you're holding fast to Jesus, you can't help 
but understand that it was your sin that put him to death. Yes, you'll condemn sin wherever you see it, but you'll do it in a way that humbly admits, but by the grace of God, there go I. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your